Welcome back to Investigating Legal Systems featuring China this season. This is episode two. Today we're going to be diving into the criminal justice system, the prison system, sentencing, and basically everything that happens after you're convicted of a crime. Um, my name is Lucas Gravenstein. I'm one of the co-anchors today on Legal Systems, along with my other co-anchors. Emma Han, Taylor Curtis. And we're excited to be bringing you this podcast featuring the differences between the United States system and China. This is Taylor Curtis, and we are going to start off the Criminal Justice Podcast Unit 2 with the jury's overview. We live in the USA, and we pretty much know how our jury system works, but to give an overview, there are two types of juries in the U.S. which serve different functions in federal trial courts. The first of the two is a trial jury. A trial jury, also known as a petite jury, decides whether the defendant committed the crime as charged in a criminal case or whether the defendant injured the plaintiff in a civil case. These juries consist of 6 to 12 people. They're generally public, but jury deliberations are private. Defendants have the right to appear, testify, and call witnesses on their behalf. The final outcome is a verdict in favor of plaintiffs or defendant in a civil case, or guilty or not guilty in a criminal case. The second of the two juries is a grand jury. A grand jury is presented with evidence from the U.S. attorney, the prosecutor, and the criminal criminal cases. The grand jury determines whether there is probable cause to believe the individual has committed a crime and should be put on trial. If the grand jury determines there's enough evidence, an indictment will be issued against the defendant. A grand jury usually consists of around 16 to 23 people. These proceedings are not open to the public. Defendants and their attorneys do not have the right to appear before the grand jury. That's a basic overview of the U.S. and how their jury system works. Now let's go into China's, quote, jury system. They have a system where they have people's assessors. In April 2018, the National People's Congress Standing Committee enacted a law on people's assessors. This enables citizens to try cases with professional judges. People's assessors are somewhat like judges as they will have equal rights as judges do in trials, unless the law specifically provides otherwise. The assessors are unable to vote on legal questions, but they can discuss them, and then they vote with judges on the issues of the fact, which are decided by the principle of majority rule. People's assessors were ultimately introduced in the 1950s so that the public could have a voice in the judicial process. This new law provides them with a specific legislation foundation intended to ultimately advance judicial democracy. Because of this new enacted law, the public's role will be expanded into what is effectively a people's jury system. Because of this, the people of China are allowed to participate in the most significant cases, including those which involve the death penalty. They are able to sit on three-person collegiate benches and sometimes seven-person panels, which usually include three judges and four assessors. They cannot, however, act as the chief judge of a panel or decide a case on their own. Thanks, Taylor, for that nice overview of the differences in the, quote, jury system in USA and China. 
So if I wanted to be serve on a jury in either country or the Chinese equivalent of a jury, could I do that, or do I have to meet certain requirements before I'm able? Sure. Thanks, Emma. I'm gonna run through some of the qualifications that China and the U.S. have for their quote jury systems. So in China, an assessor must be a Chinese citizen aged at least 28 who has received at least a high school education. He or she must also be an upstanding, law-abiding, and committed to upholding the Constitution. Assessors are randomly selected for five-year terms, but some people, as in Hong Kong, are ineligible, including lawyers, notaries, and arbitrators, and those of bad character. China hopes that since the people's assessors come from the outside the system, that they will provide a degree of independent scrutiny, which has not always been possible. The advantage, to, the advantages to this are that it might help guard against any improper pressure being applied, as well as any potential corruption. In the U.S., the age requirement is a bit younger. You have to be at least 18 years of age, but like China, you have to be a citizen of the selected country. You also have to reside primarily in the judicial district for one year. You have to be adequately proficient in English to satisfactorily complete the juror qualification form. In the U.S., you have to have no disqualifying mental or physical condition. You can't currently be subject to fel felony charges punishable by imprisonment for more than one year, and you have to never be convicted of a felony unless civil rights have been legally restored. The last thing about the U.S. in this category is that there are three groups that are exempt from federal jury service. These three things are that members of armed forces and active duty can't serve on the jury, members of professional fire and police departments, and then public officers or federal, state, or local governments who are actively engaged in full time in the performance of their public duties. <clears throat> Persons employed on a full-time basis in any of these categories are barred from serving on federal juries, even if they desire to do so. So it seems as though these qualifications to be a people's assessor or be a jury member is pretty broad spectrum. So how do they actually go about choosing people who do fit these roles and do the roles assigned to them? Well, in China. The Standing Committee of Local People's Congress may select people's assessors and then provide a list of them to the courts at a corresponding level.、Um, and the courts may select people's assessors to participate in the case of the first trial. Collegial panels for the first trial may be composed of judges and people's assessors, or of judges exclusively. So sometimes they're not always in the trials. The people's assessor system is different from the jury system in common law jurisdiction, which what we have in the United States. And that the people's assessors are not selected on the basis of citizenship; they function as judges and have the authority to decide both on issues and facts of the law. Whereas in the U.S., each district court randomly selects the citizens, and those names are selected just from a list of registered voters and people with driver's license、um, that live in the district. The people randomly are selected. Um, and complete a questionnaire to determine if they are qualified to serve on that jury. The qual the those who are qualified are randomly chosen to be summoned to appear for the jury duty. This selection process helps to make sure that the the jurors represent a cross section of the community without regard to the race, gender, national origin, age, or the political affiliation. So this gives a broad 
and diverse selection to the juries, um, especially in the United States. And then this would put them into the jury pool. Um, and just because you're being summoned for jury service doesn't necessarily guarantee that a person will actually serve on the jury. So when the jury is needed for a trial, the group of qualified jurors is taken into the courtroom where the trial will end up taking place. And then from there, the judge and the attorneys ask potential jurors questions to determine that they're suitable to serve on the jury. And this process is called voir dire. And the purpose of this process is to exclude the jury of people who may not be able to decide the case very fairly. Uh, members of the panel who know of any person involved in the case, uh, they may have information on the case or who have strong um, prejudices or thoughts about people or issues that are involved in the case. Uh, those type of people will be excused by the judge from that courtroom during this process. Um, they also may exclude a certain number of jurors without giving a reason if they feel that it's necessary. So now that we've chosen our people assessor and jury members, what is the next step in the trial process? What happens in the courtroom after this fact? Yeah, so once they, they pass the judge and um, attorney's qualifications and seem to be fit for the jury process and actually get to be on the trial, um, the expectations for the assessors in China are quite high because of the new rule that they passed, the new act, where they want um, their citizens to be a part of the courtroom process. Um, they have acquired a significantly enhanced role, um, and China and the judicial system in China doesn't want the assessors to be afraid to use their that role and that power to their advantage. So, for example, if they are presented with abrupt evidence, tainted evidence, uh, they will need to insist on its exclusion and where the evidence is deficient to press an acquittal for that evidence. Um, if they do this, the assessors will be proved their worth as people's jurors and do what is expected of them um, as assessors and as being a part of China's judicial process and system. Um, for the U.S., the expectations as far as being a process in or being a role in the process of the judicial system it's about the same as china um to be able to have a public role but in trial they're expected to listen to take notes um discuss the facts and um what is being said in trial um and then there's two different types of trials that um, jurors listen to in the U.S., and one of those is a criminal trial um, where an individual is accused of committing a crime that is considered against society as a whole. And in these types of juries, 12 people and alternates make up the jury. A unanimous, de unanimous decision must be reached before a defendant is found guilty and the government must prove the crime was committed beyond a reasonable doubt. In the criminal trials, guilty pleas and plea negotiations reduce the need for juries in criminal cases. The second out of the two trials is a civil trial where litigants seek remedies for private wrongs that don't necessarily have broader social impacts. At least six people make up the trials or the jury in these trials.
the jury must come to a unanimous decision based on um, the standard of proof is preponderance of the evidence or more than not. Settlement negotiations are reduced the need of juries in civil cases. So, Taylor, I know that one of the things we've mentioned in class as a critique about the jury system in the United States is that because they're ordinary citizens who lack the necessary legal expertise, they tend to just rely on whatever attorney appears the most authoritative or the bias of the judge. Do the same criticisms apply in the Chinese people's assessor system? Yeah, so in China, the decision is made at the end of the trial um, where the judge instructs the jury on the applicable law. Um, and the jury must obey the judge's instructions as to the law. The jury alone is responsible for determining the facts of the case. Um, so the president of the People's Court presides over the meeting of judi judicial committees at all levels. So the chief um, presides over the people's Procuratorates at the corresponding levels may attend the meetings without voting rights. This is like the judge versus jury in the United States, like you had mentioned, Emma. And so this would be like the president versus assessors in pretty much all levels of the judicial system in China. Now we're going to look at the differences in between the Chinese and American systems in the process of sent sentencing after a criminal conviction. Sentencing is a controversial topic in the United States, as we've seen in class with things we've done like the podcast and watching the 13th documentary. Sentencing is also a controversial issue in China right now, and there's a major reform in process that's been in process for about 10 years now, trying to bring more equality to the criminal justice system and how criminals are sentenced after they're convicted. Previously in China, because they're a civil legal system, they have a very long criminal code, which lists every crime along with a minimum and a maximum punishment. However, these ranges of punishment are very broad, and the judges in China are not provided with any guidelines or direction as to how they should decide what the amount of years that someone should get based on the range. For example, for murder in China, there are two classes. One is of a serious type. The minimum punishment is 10 years, and the maximum punishment is the death sentence. Another class in, of murder in China is the less serious class, and the minimum for that is three years, the maximum being 10 years. However, Chinese judges are not provided with any interpretation as to how they should decide which class of murder a criminal should be prosecuted in. And then within that, they aren't provided any guidance as to the amount of years they should assign. So theoretically, judges could just decide irrelevantly which class the murder falls into, being less serious or more serious, and then just decide any kind of length of punishment that's within the range. Chinese judges are not required to provide any kind of explanation or reasoning for their decisions, which provides for low judicial accountability. There are several issues that come along with this vague sentencing practice. For example, it provides for a lot of inconsistency as to what sentences are paired with what crimes. A similar crime committed under similar circumstances should generally have the same punishment. However, historically in China, that has not been the case. And because of different judges deciding different cases and 
providing different sentences, because there's no direction on how to sentence, the same crime could be sentenced anywhere from three to ten years, depending on which judge you happen to get and their personal biases. Also in China, the sentence is announced the same time as the verdict. As soon as the criminal is proclaimed guilty in the court, the judge announces a sentence. In the U.S., we do this differently. After someone is convicted, there's a couple weeks until they're sentenced, and during the course of those weeks, we engage in a pre-sentence investigation where we look at the aggravating and mitigating factors of the circumstances in order to provide an accurate sentence. Also in the U.S., both attorneys can make recommendations as to what sentence they think is just, which the judge generally takes into consideration. In China, the attorneys do not have the authority, at least did not have the authority, to make any kind of recommendation. And since the judge is announcing the sentence at the same time as the verdict, they don't have any time to really consider the aggravating and mitigating factors of the particular circumstance, therefore leading to a particularly unjust and inconsistent sentence. As we heard from Lucas in the last episode, the judges in China typically don't have the immense legal experience that judges in the U.S. have. Because of the legal experience that judges in the U.S. have, they generally tend to understand the sentencing process more and take very careful consideration when providing a sentence. In China, however, since they don't have that kind of background in education, they tend to rely on their own experience, which could be filled with bias or just lack of knowledge and experience. Because the U.S. is a common law system, one of the main factors judges look at when sentencing a case is precedent. And in the past, what has the same crime been sentenced as? In China, judges can't reference other cases and therefore have no reference as to what kind of punishment is appropriate or in the past what has been used. This is an area that I think the U.S. does extremely well in because we take a lot of consideration as to the aggravating and mitigating factors, previous case law, testimony from victims and others impacted by the crime in order to determine the appropriate sentence. All of these factors were lacking in the Chinese criminal justice system until recently with the reform. Speaking of the reform, technically it's still in process. China, the Supreme People's Court in China, sort of started a trial period of sentencing reform starting in 2010 that is still going on. The purpose is to impose certain sentencing guidelines and then track data, keep a database of all the cases and how they're sentenced, and they're going to use this data in order to come up with more specific and effective reform. I think this is something the U.S. should do because, as we heard in the podcast, it's astounding that we don't have any kind of database with sentences and recidivism rates and how they work together. So I think this is a good idea on China's part to keep the data and records in order to provide for more effective reform. And I think this would be a good step for the U.S. to follow. The proposed reforms in China would make sentencing a part of the investigation and trial process so that they would have separate consideration and not just something that's tacked on to the end of a trial. Prosecutors in China have been against this because it makes more work on their part. They have to come up with evidence and facts and create a brief um, proposing a suggested sentence. What this would not do is introduce plea bargaining like we have in the U.S. system. This would be a separate practice. The reforms would also allow attorneys on each side to argue what they think is the appropriate punishment, something that has been lacking in the past in China. This would also provide more grounds for appealing sentences that could be unjust or inconsistent with the law. 
Clearly, no guidance for judges in China who don't have a lot of legal experience provides for a lot of issues with sentencing. However, their reforms that are proposed and should be taking place soon would make it a lot different. The reforms kind of follow in the steps of the U.S. justice system because they make sentencing a part of the trial, a part of the investigation, allow attorneys to argue, and generally just take more consideration into the aggravating and mitigating circumstances of the case. This is something that I think the U.S. does well in. But as we know, the U.S. isn't perfect, and we do face similar problems, but probably to a lesser extent that China has in the past. We saw on the 13th the problem of mandatory minimums for drug offenses and how those can severely impact minority communities, which is something we still have to work on. In both China and the U.S., once the sentence is announced and finalized, the punishment has to be executed, which is where we get to the Chinese prison system. Welcome to China's prison system. You've gone through the trial process, you've been sentenced, and now you're in prison. Well, welcome aboard. You're with 118 people per 100,000 is the population in China. But luckily for you, the one in the U.S., it's 655 people per 100,000. So it's almost quintuple what it is in China. Now, China's legal system um, for the prison is a penal system. So it's focused on reform rather than retribution and you dealing with your consequences. So even death sentences can be stayed by a two-year sentence. So you get sentenced to death and let's say you go to prison, you're a really good prisoner, you work really hard, you reform yourself, and you have enough merits and things in your file, you can actually be released from prison on a death sentence, which is a lot different than in the United States. In the United States, if you're sentenced to a life sentence, you're going to be cramped with 655 per 100,000 people, and you're going to be there for a long time. And usually prison sentences for death don't get relieved, especially after a two-year period. Um, so the system is organized in China. Um, the Chinese Communist Party rules over the Ministry of Justice. Um, the, ministry, the Ministry of Justice then rules over the Bureau of Prison Administration, which deals with all the prisons in China. Um, there's currently 700 establishments of prisons in China, comparatively to the United States that has 4,574 prison establishments. Um, China has 30 penitentiaries for the juveniles, so their juvenile system is a little bit different than ours. Um, it's much smaller. Most children go to an education-slash-work-based juvenile detention center, although there are a few detention centers, much like the U.S., for higher crimes such as murder and rape and things along those lines. Um, so the current prison population in China is 1,649,804 people. Um, females actually make up 6.4% of the national prison population, and 0.4% are foreign nationality, so they're not actually from China. In recent years, China has faced a lot of scrutiny from other countries for working their prisoners to death, um, unlawfully detaining people, and basically putting people in prison before they've even been sentenced or seen in court, 
which has been seen unconstitutional in some aspects. Um, to affect change, as Emma talked about, um, China has started to compile crime statistics. Um, they're doing this for the prison system as well, so it includes like age, gender, um, different stereotypical factors that would play into the prison system that they're looking at. They're doing this to improve the prison system is the hope. China's system is focused on reform and helping people get back on their feet and basically get back into the real world and live a normal life, be an everyday citizen. So China's actually done away with things like probation officers, but they still have probation, actually. Um, you can still get let out on probation. Um, how they uphold the probation and actually keep it in effect is your local neighborhood and community is responsible for holding you to your probation or your employer, depending on which one is more prevalent in your life or if you even have a job to begin with. But if you're not on probation, you don't get out of prison and you're in prison, well, what does it look like to be in a Chinese prison? Well, it's usually a lot of education reforming yourself, learning new skills that will be helpful in the everyday world and real society, um, and work. It is a largely work-based program. Um, for many years, prisoners have made pro different products that are sold in retail stores. Um, one of the biggest prison sales have actually been socks. They developed a machine to make socks. They've developed a machine to make sandals. Um, the Shandong prison actually operated on a surplus of $529,412 due to labor last year. So they're actually making profit off of their prisons. So China is taking this money that they are making in profit and putting it back into the prisons to help develop um, and make sure the prisons are staying up to date and relevant, which the U.S. has long time struggled with affording prisons having enough cells for prisoners, and most prisons in the United States besides for-profit prisons are running at a deficit currently. Um, how they keep the prison profitable is they hold prisoners to a quota. Um, so prisoners are expected to meet a quota and have a full day of work and school. They also have incentives for prisoners. So per hour, um, if you're a male, you're going to make $1.48. Um, this is, I did translate this over to American dollars for your help. Um, and it's $1.84 per woman. I don't know why there's a difference there. I would assume because personal care products and that gender are different. Um, so basically per hour, and then you get a 25 cent bonus for every time you get over your quota. So if you get multiple different things over your quota, you're going to get a lot of bonuses and you can actually make a fair amount of money, which goes into your commissary. So same thing as the U.S., they buy from a commissary, all their toothpaste, healthcare products and stuff like that, except they have more money to spend considering a lot of them are working really hard to create these bonuses so they can afford things. The commissary sells chocolates, um, different sweets, different snacks, things ordinarily uh, American system would not have. Um, the work schedule for them, it's six days a week. Um, so they don't work on Sundays, so they can do religious practices or have a day off. And they also don't do holidays. But every other day of the year, the prison is open, running, and workers are working hard. Um, workers are assigned jobs based on their post-release requirements. So depending on what they're going to do when they get out of prison is depending on the job they're going to get. 
unlike the U.S., the U.S. kind of just throws people into random labor things and things that they may or may not like. Um, China really tries to get something that people are like that they can reform around and actually change themselves around, which is, I think, really different than... Now, we talked about probation. We talked about people getting out after two-year sentences on a death penalty. Well, how are these people actually getting out? It's not like everybody and their grandmothers being released out of prison here. Um, most of them are receiving merits or rewards. So let's say they work really hard and maybe one of the officers on duty recognizes that or they're just an upstanding person and they're reforming themselves and they're changing their ways. Um, they can receive a merit or reward that goes into their file, possibly allowing them a shorter sentence if they get multiple of them, which is convenient for them. So besides working in education, what does a prison actually look like in China? Well, prisoners are held in pods of 300 square feet, um, usually about six to eight people in each of these pods. And the reason you're in a pod is to necessitate group reform and group criticism of each other. So in China, it's expected that you work together with your fellow prisoners to help each other reform themselves and become upstanding citizens in the country. In the U.S., I feel like a lot of it is focused on you paying your punishment and not reforming yourself. So you don't see a lot of this like dialect and conversation that happens. Um, from one of the articles that I read, they were talking to a Chinese warden about prison, basically, riots. And it took them 10 minutes to explain to him what a prison riot was because in China, they have such a high-level sense of authority and understand that authority rules above you that there's never been really a prison riot. People don't go against the authorities. Um, the warden in the article was actually really shocked by it. He was shocked that that would even happen and that any country would ever let that happen, which I thought was really surprising because you see examples of it in the United States and Mexico, all these places where riots are taking place, guards are getting hurt, and China's never even heard of that because authority is such an instilled part of their community and values and tradition in China. So for the most part, that's about everything in the Chinese prison system. It's a penal system focused on reform is basically the biggest part here. And it's really focused on getting these people back into the workforce and creating a sense of community within them. So Lucas, in your, in your opinion, does the Chinese prison system work better than the U.S. prison system from what you've read? Um, I would have to agree that the Chinese prison system is running better than the U.S. system. The U.S. has the highest amount of people in prisons, has the highest amount of prisons out of any um, first world country in the world. Um, Comparatively, again, I mean, China only has 118 people per 100,000 people in prison. The U.S. has 665 people per 100,000. So again, almost quintuple that amount. Um, the establishments, there's almost quintuple the times of establishment. And China is a pretty large country comparatively to the United States. Um, the United States has 4,574 prison establishments. So in... A nutshell, I would say that China's system is running a little bit better in terms of prison, in terms of prisons in the U.S.'s. So we've discussed um, the courts, sentencing, prison. We've given you a basic overview not only of China but how the U.S. works itself. Um, 
we wanted to tell you about a case that happened in China. Um, Jing Zhang has been in prison since 1995, and he's kind of just been languishing there, and it's just a problem, and it's a case that we thought would really kind of coordinate all three of our topics together into one and give you a general overview of some of the problems that do lie within the Chinese system and the U.S. system, because it is a very similar issue that we see in the U.S. So the case, <clears throat> he was convicted uh, in Jilin province for raping and murdering a 20-year-old woman. Um, it states that he gave her a ride on his motorbike and then killed her and dumped the her body in a ditch. Um, although Jin protested his innocence at trial, he was then sentenced to death on the basis of a confessional statement, which he insisted was based off of um, terms of torture. And as we talked about, because the Chinese haven't placed emphasis on any kind of investigation before sentencing, you can tell that it leads to quick sentencing and could even result in false convictions because of the lack of attention that is paid towards it. With this information, Jin's case is yet another miscarriage of the justice arising from coerced testimonies. However, as mentioned earlier, recent reforms to China's criminal procedural law should help curb such abuse. The court's focus is now on whether the alleged confession was made voluntary, not its truth. If the prosecution cannot show the suspect made the confession freely, the judge is now required to exclude it. The exclusion of involuntary evidence is, however, only one means of ensuring a fair trial. Another hugely important reform that we talked about before when we talked about juries and the assessors in China um, is the role of the people's assessor in the trial process as they are able to have a say in this case. Um, they discharge a function of non-dissimilar to that of the jurors in Hong Kong. Because of the inconclusive evidence and facts of this case, Jin's conviction has been reviewed by higher tribunals, resulting in several retrials. In October, the latest retrial concluded in the Jilin High People's Court, with prosecutors agreeing with defense lawyers that the facts were unclear and the evidence insufficient. Although the formal verdict is still awaited, Jin's lawyer, Zi Zhangdong, said the court recognized that Jin had not committed a crime and was therefore not a suspect. I think the point to see with this case is that people spend a lot of time unnecessarily in prison because of wrong convictions, because of mess-ups in the legal systems, because of mess-ups all around, whether it be sentencing, during the trial, or maybe even in prison. There's a lot of mess-ups, and I don't think any one country has quite figured out how yet to deal with this. And the U.S. is definitely one that struggles with this, and China obviously struggles with this. So I think the common issue to see here is it is possible for mistakes to happen, and it's how we rectify these mistakes that do happen. China struggles to rectify mistakes. This man has been in prison since 1995. He's been waiting his conviction because of multiple retrials. And this is just one issue prevalent in China. And I can name several prevalent issues in America that are very similar to this case where people have spent many, 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 many years in prison for no reason. Well, thank you for joining us on episode two, season one of Investigating Legal Systems, starting of China. Um, I'm your co-anchor, Lucas Gravenstein, signing off.
And this is Emma Han. And Taylor Curtis. Thank you for joining us today as we look at the differences between the Chinese and American criminal justice systems. And we hope you enjoyed listening. And we'll see you next Until time. Until next time.